Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director George Tillman Jr.'s new drama, The Hate You Give. Based on the best-selling young adult novel by Angie Thomas, the film tells the story of Star Carter, a 16-year-old African-American girl who is torn between two worlds, the elite predominantly white prep school she attends, and the poor predominantly black neighborhood where she lives. Her life becomes even more complicated after she witnesses the fatal shooting of her childhood best friend Khalil at the hands of a police officer and faces pressure from all sides. In addition to The Hate You Give, Mr. Tillman's credits include the feature films Soul Food, Men of Honor, Faster, and The Inevitable Defeat of Mr. and Pete, the movie for television Love is a Four-Letter Word, and episodes of the series Power, Luke Cage, and This Is Us. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles, Mr. Tillman spoke with director Greg Berlanti about filming The Hate You Give. During their conversation, Mr. Tillman discusses why he describes the directorial choices as instinctive for him. Capturing the spirit of young people without making the film specifically young adult, and the challenge of replacing a key actor shortly before locking picture. Great to, great to have everyone here. Great to be here. I'm so uh, honored to be here. I, I, I really was just, I told you all this backstage, but I was just so utterly blown away by the movie. It, it does so many things so well. It's such a beautiful film. It's such an important film. Uh, and I don't think just an important YA film. I, I really think one of the most important movies of the, this year or many, many years recently. Thank so you. Thank, thank you. you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about how you came to make this film. Yeah, the, the, the book came to me around uh, January 2016. Uh, one of my VP of development sent me the book. I was actually working in New York. I was actually working on a show for Marvel, Luke Cage. It was like a winter cold, and I was working in the daytime. And, uh, and the book came in, and I was trying to read it at night. It's really sometimes it's hard when you're working on a show. How are you going to read? So I was able to read the first chapter, and I was sort of blown away about the ideal of... Uh, identification, this young girl straddling two worlds. And I was able to identify that, and I feel like within the African-American culture, and sometimes in other cultures as well, sometimes you're, you're code switching between two worlds. And I felt like I'd never seen that in a film before. And as I kept going, I was really struck by the language, how Angie Thomas wrote this book. And I just felt like it just felt fresh. It just felt very new. And it also it was just very relevant at the time, so I just felt like this is something that I, that was connecting to me inside. So I just got on the phone with her very early on and very easily the themes kind of came to me, the idea, the structure and which characters. And I just kind of did a pitch and me and her just bonded right away. So that's how it all kind of came together. And uh, the script was written by the late, incredibly talented Audrey Wells. Uh, were, you, were you all, yes, let's give a round of applause for Audrey. Were you all, were you involved in the development right from the very beginning since you'd read the book prior? 
Yeah, I was the first. I, I, I had a pitch with Elizabeth Gabler and Aaron Simidoff and just talked about how I saw the movie. Um, Audrey was reading the book at the same time as a Manila, so it wasn't published yet, so it was this book was just sort of floating around. So I got on the phone with, with Audrey, and I remember our first conversation. She was concerned about, she's like, you know, for me, this movie, this book is written by African-American, and it's so much your experience. Me as a white woman, do you feel I should walk away from this? And I told her, I said, I really believe as an African-American director and as an African-American author that really I wanted a professional who can adapt the book structurally, inciting incident, three-act structure, and really deliver everything. I said, in terms of dialogue, and you got the book, you have me, we have actors, we can work on that. So when I got the first draft, it was one of the first times where I felt like um, I was just excited. You know what I mean? Because usually you get a draft, it goes the other way. And you find, you find yourself like, oh, now I got to pick all the pieces up. I'm not ready to give this to the studio. But I was excited right away. I remember calling Aaron Siminoff. I, like, I feel like we have a movie. And that's her. You know, that was Audrey. She was a professional. And I love working with her. And I thought she did an amazing job. And she cared about the project a lot. And what was the most, having loved, having loved the book as much as you did and been as passionate about it as you were, what was the most daunting challenge to you in terms of you know, realizing it as a filmmaker? I think the biggest thing really was just, um, just getting it right in terms of that. I felt like, for me, I had to talk very early on with my father. My father had to talk with me, and I had various uncles and cousins coming out of prison and from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I feel like that was inside me, the ideal of being black in America and having the cop in the community. That was all... Of, I feel like that was all instinctive for the first time. This was a movie that was very instinctive for me. A lot of that stuff really flowed, and it flowed for the actors. The biggest thing was just capturing, being authentic in terms of the police brutality, in terms of the, the riots, in terms of the spirit of the book. Because so many people, the, the, the book is still number one, 83 weeks uh, you know, she's just and not just yeah. on the top ten, number one, number one. Yeah. So a lot of people love the book. So sometimes you just want to capture the spirit and the energy of the book, and I think it helped having the writer nearby and all the actors and I just agree just to be honest, be authentic, don't try too hard, don't over dramatize, let it come from here. Um, and that was one of the first times I felt like I did that. And how about this incredible cast? Amanda Slenberg <laughs> yeah. is Amanda. Yeah, she was Russell Hornsby. Yeah, yeah, she was great. Amanda was early on. She was reading the book. I was just blown away that she was she was seventeen when I met her. Um, she's nineteen now. She was seventeen and she was reading it on her own, just to look for material for herself. A lot of actors that age doing that. I was blown away. She came in. Um, I recognize her from The Hunger Game. I wasn't too familiar with her work. Um, but when we sat down, she was telling me from Inglewood, going to a white private school, going to these two worlds. Uh, what really hit me was she was saying in her white private school, she wouldn't tell her 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 uh, other students, her other classmates, that when they go to her, their, her house, don't go down Crenshaw. Mm -hmm. She was worried about what they thought about Crenshaw Avenue. 
You know what I mean? And all those two worlds of her two neighborhoods. So I'm listening to that. I'm listening to her language and how she talks. You know, because I'm in my 40s. She's 19. This is really the area of the book. And I really want to capture the spirit for young people as well. Even though I never looked at it as a YA movie, I felt like kids are very smart. They're very intelligent. And I feel like I could just play it like I would just make a movie for everyone. So um, she came in and I was just blown away by her. She had a tough job because she's in every scene in terms of her rehearsals. And and it's like she's giving two or three different kinds of performances too because she's moving between those different worlds. Yeah, she's moving between these two different worlds. So she breaking down what those two worlds are in Inglewood and, and in, inside of um, Garden Heights. Her behavior, her patterns, her language would change very slightly. And and also the rehearsals, just to get her in the moment of being and not acting and just being in the moment. So her rehearsal would double. I had her for like two weeks, two and a half maybe. And um, basketball class, all those things, I just felt like it was my duty just to guide and and also allow her room to bring the external things to the, to the material as well. And I'm sure you're not shooting it consecutively. So then also when you're doing it, you're shooting you know, a, a pitch-perfect emo, uh, emotional performance out of order. Yeah. Right? And so you're reminding her on the day she's probably doing four different scenes from four different yeah. moments in the film. Yeah, yeah. She, we're all over the place. One of the things I try to do, the hardest thing was really shooting the, the killing, the, the, the shooting of Khalil. Because that was over two days, and it was really day, second week almost wow. in the schedule. Um, we were very struck and in the moment in pre-production because the philando could still happen in Minnesota. Uh, so uh, taking in all that information, a lot of this from YouTube, you see all this and it's, it's live, it's, it's in the moment, it's not dramatized, it's just you can't believe what you're really seeing. Um, so it influenced us on an emotional level but also on a, on, a, on a visual level. But trying to maintain that, I remember we had no breaks for lunch, we shot it maybe eight, nine hours straight. And her, for her to maintain it over two days, that was very tough. And also the riot, the, the riot at the very end. Um, I remember for her work session, we did a work session before we begin. I rehearsed and auditioned her for that section on the, on the car. Um, I did it once. I did it like five times in that very early in pre-production. But after that, I never did it anymore. I just really let the movie in the scenes, all that build up over a period of time. So by the time we got there, she was in that moment. But it, it, it was a very emotional ride for her all the way through and for everybody. But, you know, we, we were a family and it really worked out. And Mav? Yeah, Russell Hornsby. Yeah. <clears throat> it's yeah. wonderful. And really another yeah. beautiful performance. Yeah, yeah, he's great. I, I actually met, I, I, I know his work for, I've been knowing his work for like 18 years. And um, I've been seeing him around. He's one of those actors that you just know who's great. And I actually actually physically met him was at, actually at the Four Seasons. You know, they got a buffet over there, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's an expensive buffet, too, you know. <laughs> but he was there with his family, and I was there with my family. And I came up to him. I said, you're amazing. I want to work with you one day. And he knew my work. And he's like, we'll work together one day. So when this project came up, I just felt like he was the guy. I saw him prior to that. We, he was in Fences with Denzel, and he was also on Broadway doing Fences. So um, he came in. Uh, lo a lot of that audition was him was just introducing him to the studio and introducing him to the producers. Even though I knew who he was, he's not one of those guys that you just think right off the bat. Mm -hmm. But I knew that he was amazing and one of the greatest 
actors working, actors working today. So I actually, he came in about three times, but every time it was something better. First time we met, we just talked about it. And in the restaurant, he did an August Wilson monologue for me. Um, and I kept telling him I wanted Mav to have this edge that's very present today, but also be a father. We talked about breaking down stereotypes. Like in the first scene, we talked about, like when you notice in most films from 2000 to 1984, half of those films is not a father present in a lot of those stories. And some of those stories are not actually made by African-Americans. And always, and when I grew up in Milwaukee in the community, there was always a father around. There was always working, they were always doing things. So one of the things we talked about is breaking down those stereotypes. Most of the time you see with guys with braids, with tattoos, right off the bat you think he's a bad guy. And we totally talked about reversing all these things and presenting and representing these these cliches that we see for so long. So that's the first thing he came in was the August Wilson. The second time he came in with the braids. The third time I had him with a man. He just kept coming back and kept getting stronger. But that's really what a great actor. And that's what he was, was a rock for, for that family and for the set, you know. And what I think is so true across all the performances both in the depth of the character construction and in the performances themselves, is everyone comes in and does their part perfectly well, and they all feel like fully rounded people, whether it's Issa Rae's character, whether it's Common's character, whether it's Anthony Mackie's character. You know, they all, they all come right in. And, and I, I think just to present all of those performances together, it must have been uh, a, a, any bit of a challenge. Yeah, no, it wasn't a challenge at all. The great thing was we had those rehearsals, and... Those two weeks was spending time with the family and you know, them hanging out with each other, with Sakani, with Seven, and going out to dinner, doing scenes, doing improv, um, just hanging out, star with, you know, with specific with Haley and her friends or with Khalil. When you're down there for two and a half weeks in Atlanta and there's you just spending time with each other and everybody loved the material, especially after the table read. I like to have a couple of table reads. I think we had one here. Um, for this particular movie, but you just starting everybody bringing something to the table, making the material better. You have the book as your backstory. Um, that really helped things where we really felt like we were really there, and it just made things really work. It helps when you have a great script with Audrey Wells and, and Tina Mabry, the things that she brought to the material as well. Um, it just helped when you got a great script and a great book. And working with your DP to sort of chart the really the loss of innocence of the character throughout. Um, and the movie gets more and more serious as it moves along. And, and one of the beautiful things that I think it does is it tur turns some of the tropes of the YA yeah. story on their ear 20 minutes in and becomes this wholly other yeah. uh, kind of film that you is completely unexpected. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Mihai Malamar, he's a great... I actually saw his work on The Master, what he did, P.T. Anderson. I love what he did with the widescreen. Um, you know, anamorphic, and I just thought he was amazing. I knew going in, you know, from a visual standpoint, I in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I went to a African American public school, and just because I was because I was a class clown, right? My parents moved me over to a white public school, which was seventy percent white, and the rest was Latino and African American. So when I went to that different school, I just felt like everything changed in terms of the, 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 the hallways was wider, the behavior was completely different, the education was, money was spent in the right places in education, the school that I came from was overcrowded. It, it just looked completely different, so I felt like right off the bat, 
I knew wanted to change the perspectives. And Mihai was able to do that for me because he's, he's the DP, but he's also an operator. So when I started talking about all these widescreens and all these different things, and I wanted Williamson to be completely different and completely style, completely different aesthetic, into her point of view, he got it. And then the next thing you know, he's like, I, I got these great lenses for you. We're going to get, we got these Ben-Hur lenses from Ben-Hur. And, the, and, <laughs> and, you know, it's only two lenses left. The only person who really used it last was Quentin on Hard Earth, you know, Hard Eight. So I was like, cool, let's, let's go for it. And then <laughs> we'll have these set of lenses over here. And he was there in the moment. He was great. Um, again, I just loved his work on with P.T. Anderson. He worked with Francis Coppola. And he's there, and he was very helpful in getting the visual style across. And how about shooting in Atlanta in general? Um, Atlanta was great. I was really concerned at the beginning because I really wanted to feel very Southern, like the movie, like the book, but metropolitan at the same time. The ideal that this city can happen anywhere, obviously from the first scene going into the, the, going into the street, white crane going into this family home, the talk is something... That happened in every black neighborhood. Most neighborhoods, the talk is about the birds and the bees, and the black neighborhood is about staying alive and how do you how you relate to police officers. So, with that in mind, I felt like I wanted the look to be very specific, and it took a little while to find find the locations. But once I did, what I did find what was the best is really trying to make the riots and the uprising feel like it was real and in the moment. A lot of that was based off of Charlotte. When you look at the Charlotte riots, which was downtown across the street from the Omni Hotel, or you look at Baltimore or you know, Ferguson, those were the three things that we looked for for the riots. In terms of that, who are these guys in the riots, um, which is the community, which is gang leaders sometimes, which is young African-American, which is ministers. We broke all those things down. And breaking things down, why were they there? And a lot of that was given to the background actors. We had about 400, 450 every night. And they had this, these material very early. And they came to play. They came prepared and ready, thanks to my crew and everybody involved. And that's one of the biggest thing was the talent and the background was just really amazing. And I never really knew that. And that is so much work down there that you really get top-notch talent. How long did it take to shoot the riots section? Um, we shot it uh, five, I believe, four days. I see Mel out there. Mel, how many days <laughs> we shoot it, Mel? Four days. Okay. It's Mel work with me now. Uh, yeah, we have four days. Um, but unfortunately, we had to go back down there. We had to... Re you know, obviously replace an actor um, that played Chris because of something that happened on YouTube and some racist stuff that he said. So we had to go back and KJ Appa came in. Do you want to talk about what that's like to do as a director? What that, uh, yeah, that was like from a logistic standpoint? That was tough. I mean, it was right before my director's cut, two days before my director's cut. And I was feeling, and I was feeling really, really good about the cut. And um, actually, my wife actually told me something with this actor said on YouTube and it was actually on my birthday and I was like uh oh, he was just he was just playing around whatever it is right and then I saw what he said which was counter of what the movie was mm -hmm. and actually the line in the limo is when Chris says I don't see color I see people for who they are if you don't see color you don't see me that line just hit me it came at me when I heard and saw what he said on YouTube it's like no way this can we can have him in the movie and actually having conversation with Fox 
who right away was like, we want to protect the movie. This guy got to go. How do you and Amanda feel? We felt the same way. Mm. So that means going back down seven more days to shoot. And I felt like the movie was really working. His scenes were great. He was, it was always, I felt like it was working. So to go back down to do and reshoot things that you felt wasn't your fault was tough. So Amanda, just to get her back into that frame of mind, and emotionally was a tough time, but we got there thanks to KJ Apa, who we originally wanted to come in and audition the first time around, but he was on actually your show, actually right. Riverdale. <laughs> he's a good, he's a really good person, and yeah. uh, it's, it was nice to see this opportunity. But I have to say, it's such a testament to you as a director that you do not feel there's no seams in anything you did there, and it, it is seamless. It's really, uh, and the fact that you did it in seven days is like a wonder. Thank you. Thank it really you. is. It really Thank is. Thank you very it's, much. Appreciate it. Uh, and, and, uh, and a great example, I think, to the community in terms of uh, how to both prioritize being a good person and the art and uh, to do it in a, in a great way. So, so good for you. Thank you very much. Um, and so, uh, and so uh, as you're wrapping up production and uh, the first time uh, and the second time, uh, you worked with two editors on the movie. Yeah. Uh, and what was that experience like in your post-production experience that, like? That was amazing because um, Alex Black and Craig Hayes, they were two guys who never even knew each other. Um, Fox, Aaron Downey, who's my post-production guy on the movie, I said, you know what, I want to try something different. I personally never had two editors. I always felt like I always took advantage of a second and third assistant editor. Mm. Why not have two and the reason for that is because, one, I knew that I like to shoot a lot of film and um, I like to do a lot of coverage for performance sake. I don't like to do different coverage all over the set because I always try to have a specific point of view in the scene. So when you have a specific point of view, you know exactly what you want to shoot. But I like sometimes to keep the camera rolling. Sometimes for performance, I knew I was working with a young actress. Sometimes I would do a four, five, or seven takes within one, or sometimes change a reflection or change a word, or I would just shout out a subtext to her to change the, the reflection within the dialogue or the performance. So because of that, I knew that having one editor with so much amount of film and with so many takes within one or two takes, it may be better for me to have two editors and one of the things I, I learned as well, actually, I see them out there, Dirk and Steve right there, those two guys there. I met, I work with those guys on Notorious, and one of the things that these guys taught me is just go through the film, the passes as much as possible. Instead of just spending one scene on three days on one scene, just go through the whole movie as many times as you can. And with two guys, I was able to go through the film about 30 times before Fox saw the movie. Wow. And I was able to feel the pacing and feel where things were. And I think allowing two guys for the first time all the way through, it made it very, uh, it just made it very helpful for me in terms of getting through the film. Uh, I think one of the other amazing things about the movie is just what a powerful experience it is to see it in a movie theater with other individuals and to see the effect that it has on them. So how was the testing experience as you were starting to expose it to people? What, what kinds of things were you learning about the movie or about the story as you were watching people react to this movie for the first time? Yeah, I've been, I've been learning. Um, we've been tested. We tested in two places here, Baldwin Hills and in Sacramento. Um, it's been great. I felt like it, been, it feels as if it had been working for both audience, which is what I tend to want it to do. 
I feel like I wanted this film to be a conversation starter for people to have conversation, be able to talk about race, or people who don't understand what's going on within the communities and have empathy and rather sympathy. Um, and that's what I feel that has been the case. The biggest emotional thing was last week I was in Atlanta and I was just finishing a Q&A, walking off the stage, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder. I turned around, and it was this family that had tears in their eyes, and they said, we just want to thank you for making a movie. And I was like, thank you. And he said, we're the family of Emmett Till. We're Emmett Till family. And, um, and I didn't know they were there in Atlanta at all, and it just hit me. And I knew we had to get their rights from the state for using their picture. Um, I never physically personally talked to them. I did talk to Sandra Bland and um, some of the other people, pictures that we use, but um, it just hit me that, you know, 50 years ago, they were having the same, you know, the same issues still happening today. Um, um, Emmett Till got the talk going down in Mississippi, you know. Um, his mom taught him how to act in Mississippi and what it looks like between race down there and here, and those things still, and it still happened, but she was able to use her voice by keeping the casket open and um, seeing that and it just made me feel like the purpose of making the movie it was that was the purpose so wow. that made me feel good about that it's a really beautiful story um what was the moment and again uh, i had some experience with this but i loved the novel so much and then uh i had to, had the burden of directing the film was there a moment that you uh in in post or in watching the movie and putting the music together or exposing it to an audience that you went you were finally relieved and felt like you had done uh, something in a whole other art form that was as valuable a story as the book when you had first read it? Yeah, I felt really good where what isn't in the book is the philosophy at the end with Tupac, mm. uh, the whole thing of thug life. Because the book describes the philosophy. It describes, you know, to a certain point why it happened and and what is going on. But when you read it, it doesn't have that moment where, um, which I give to Audrey, which she, we were able to visualize. And the point is, how do you make that, conceptualize that for an audience? So that's how we see Sakani actually pull the gun. Um, so that wasn't in the book. Mm. The idea was, how do we get this across? And I really felt that that was something in talking to Angie, like she said, I wish that was something that she had in the book. Mm -hmm. And that made me feel really good that we really got that across. So we, we see Sakani the whole time clocking and looking at all these things, but in terms of the infant, how do we treat other people? How do we give love? A kid is seeing all these things, so all that comes back. So that's one of the things I was really proud that, um, that Audrey did and came up with. And the other thing, this will be one final question, and maybe we'll take one quick question from the, the audience. Um, you know, for me, there's so many iconic moments in the movie that I really think people will be talking about for a while. Um, is there one for you? Is there one uh, section of the film or one that you feel like sort of embodies so much of what you're trying to say with the movie? Yeah, I think there's a moment that I always go to is after she's in the diner um, with her family and, and after the cops take down her father, Star's father, uh, she's in the backseat of the car. She says, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I always get emotional at that part because I always feel like sometimes in life you think you do the right thing and you think you're headed in the right direction, but it just, things is always in front of you. And the obstacles are still there. You think you made the right choices, but it seems like it's the wrong choice. But the father takes them on the lawn and 
and he picks her up, you know, and that moment is is what I'm, I guess I'm the most proud of in terms of that because the family at the end of the day, you know, no matter how different each of us are, we all sort of connected and we do have a common place among each other, which is family and picking each other up and and making sure we on the right track. So that that is a moment that I really enjoyed directing and seeing in the film as well. Terrific. Oh, yes, sir. Right down here. Uh, what is the most toughest thing in directing that surprised me? Um, I think the, the, the toughest thing that, that may have surprised me, I have to say possibly, it's just, you know, we had to do it in 40 days, you know? So, and it's a lot, I mean, that's a big, I mean, 40 days is a good schedule for this movie, but it was still a lot of things to do. So as much as I prepared, you know, and like, as much as as you ready to go and have things prepared as much as possible, um, it's always these one simple scenes that surprise you. Like, I got this figured out, we ain't gonna worry about this scene, and we'll just keep moving, and it's always this one little scene, and um, it is one of those things with uh, with film, no matter what, no matter what, how much you prepare, it is always the smaller thing. So I think it was mostly the schedule and some of the scenes within the schedule that probably surprised me most of all. Right, I think we have time for one more question. Yes, sir. Yeah, I feel like is is a really good place right now. I feel like, you know, like one of the films I love, like I love Cooley High in the '70s, right? You know, at that time, Michael Schultz, who's actually from my hometown, directed that movie, or Gordon Parks. Um, in the '70s, there was a lot of there was specific filmmakers, but then there was a lot of Afri non African Americans directing a lot of films with African Americans starring in. Some of that was the case in the 90s as well. And there was always these pockets where you see these films and those films go away. But now it's a little different now. I think reason why I think television has a lot to do with it personally in terms of there's more African-American women, more women directing. There's more African-American men directing. There's more African-American Latino and white, uh, non-white um, showrunners. So now the vision is not actually white individuals controlling those visions, they are actually visionaries who are women and African-American. So within that, you have these authentic voices and different voices, and I think the audience really need that. And some, many of these shows are very successful, and many of these films are, so which will continue to make other projects and continue to make other films. So I think that's the difference between the 70s and some of the films that were made in the 90s. So that's the difference, and I'm just glad to have this film at, this, at the same time. All right, well, George, thank you one more time. Uh, uh, you, thank you. You made a, a beautiful, beautiful movie, and, and I think you made a movie that uh, does so much for all of us as people uh, and as directors. It really uh, challenged all of us, so it's a wonderful film. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as awards season approaches, including Q&As from Joel Edgerton, Matthew Heineman, and Alfonso Cuaron, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.